We are so privileged to have with us our friends back to Jerusalem here with us this morning. And uh, uh, if you guys have remember, we've had them. How many times have we had you guys in? Couple. I was thinking like five or six, but yeah, we'll go with yours. Couple. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's always great. I uh, got to travel with them to China. That was such a privilege to get to go with them to see the underground church as a reunion, 20-year reunion of the underground church. And so anyway, so they are here with us. They're in the States, and I'm going to let Eugene come on up. If you would, would you all help me uh, welcome Eugene? (laughs) And uh, he's got some stuff to talk about, and then uh, we'll bring up our guest speaker. So anyway, bless you guys. Love you. Love you. Thank you so much, Pastor Jeff. Love working together with you, Pastor Jeff. Thank you so much for the invitation. And good morning, guys. Um, My name is Eugene Bach. I work with a Chinese organization called Back to Jerusalem. Uh, I know that you can't tell by looking at me, but I'm not Chinese. I have been living and working in China for the last 20 some odd years. And today we have a special gift. I have a dear sister friend of mine who's going to come and be sharing her story. And she's from Sudan. I know that it sounds a little bit strange that somebody from America working in China and is partnered with someone from Sudan. It sounds confusing, but let me explain just shortly what the Back to Jerusalem vision is about, if you don't know. I've been working and living in China for the last 20 some odd years, serving as China is having the world's largest revival. If you don't know that, allow me to be the one to bring you the good news and share with you that today there are about 28,000 to 30,000 people coming to Christ in China. That is amazing to us, but it's not as amazing what's happening in these revivals. In the revivals that are taking place inside of China, there is this bubbling desire that is coming up to the surface of taking the gospel to the areas that have not yet heard the good news of Jesus Christ. How many people here want to see the return of Jesus? I do. Uh, Jesus told us very clearly when he would return. Matthew chapter 24. I mean, you can do all of the math that you want. You can, you can calculate all of the Hebrew letters and divide them by two and then multiply them by the number of blood moons to find out when Jesus will come again. But at the end of the day, Jesus made it very clear. When this good news of the kingdom in chapter 24, 14 of Matthew, he said, when this good news of the kingdom is preached to all the nations, all the ethnos groups, then the end will come. Right now, we are in an area where we know exactly where the majority of the world's unreached people groups are, between China and Jerusalem. This is the area that we call the final frontier of missions. And what's amazing is that God is raising up this army inside of China not to be delegated to, Not to say, okay, you know what? We got cheaper labor over there so all the rest of the world's church can just send out Chinese missionaries to complete the Great Commission. No, that's not what's happening. What is happening is the Chinese are joining together with us as the world body of believers to complete the Great Commission by going from nation to nation, village to village, and person to person. Some of those areas are in Asia, the Middle East, and in Africa, where the good news has yet to go. And what's amazing is the type of people that God is bringing together during these last days. Let me give you just one really quick example of what this church has been directly involved in and supporting with the underground church in China. You know, when ISIS first invaded Iraq, I think right after that, I was, I was here. I came and I was sharing with you guys a little bit about that. Today, I want to give you an update on how that went. You know, as I was working inside of China, there was a, a friend of mine. He is a pastor from China. You got the chance to meet him, Pastor Joshua. He has a little small church in China of only 4 million believers. He and I flew together and we were serving in Iraq right after the invasion of ISIS. And I remember one day we were handing out uh, emergency aid to those that needed it. So we were handing out all of the different things that we had brought to give to those that had been impacted by ISIS. In the evening, 
we decided, the two of us, let's go hike up to this mountain that's right behind the village where we're serving in. And from the top of that mountain, we could see the lights of Mosul in the evening. And I remember the pastor saying, you know, I think it's great that we're able to hand out aid and food and blankets. I think it's great that we're helping those that have been impacted by ISIS. But what are we doing to bring the gospel to ISIS? I thought the gospel to ISIS. My background is I was in the U.S. Marine Corps. I did two tours in the Persian Gulf. I had a top 10 list of the things that I would love to deliver to ISIS. The gospel was not among them. But as we began to talk and he started to share, I realized what if there's an apostle Paul that is yet to have his Damascus experience? What if instead of sending soldiers, those that are serving the living God begins to send missionaries? What if instead of sending bombs, Christians begin to send Bibles? So we began to send Bibles and I loved it because I thought, why is it? The church is always playing defense. Why can't we for once begin to play offense? Instead of worrying about building walls to keep the bad people out and the good people safe, why can't we start invading the enemy's territory and having him build up walls to keep us out? And so we started to think, let's raise funding and awareness about what God is doing inside of Iraq. We're working together with the Chinese. He led us to Amish country here in America and start and ask us to start preaching among the Amish people. It didn't make any sense. I'm traveling together with Brother Yun. How many people here remember when Brother Yun came and visited this church, the heavenly man? Many people came out to hear him as he was speaking in the Amish areas. And I remember that when they heard the story about what was happening in Iraq, they came and they said, we want to be a part of that. We want to join together. The Amish. I thought this has to, I must be on punked. Like there's no way these guys want to come and join us. We were coming to raise funding with the Amish, but not to raise people to come and join the Chinese. But they got on planes and they came and they joined in Iraq with the Chinese. And I remember standing back and watching how amazing our God is. Only God could bring the Amish from America to work with the Chinese in Iraq with the Arabs. And as I began to look, I realized how amazing God is without us even planning it. The village where we were serving didn't have running water or electricity. They, the Amish fit right in. Then I started to look around and realize they got long beards. They wear all black. They look like the Taliban. They fit right in. And then we began to fly Bibles over the cities that were taken over by ISIS and drop them. How many of you guys would like to see a video of us doing that? If only we would have brought it. So we have a video that I want to share with you. It's very short, but it is offensive. It is offensive in the way that when we put cameras on the bottom of our drones and began to fly them over ISIS territory and dropping Bibles, I thought, okay, we have to share this with others. And at first, we put it together with Christian music. And I thought, guys, I want something that makes us feel like we're going to war. I want something that feels like battle. I want to feel like we are with Forrest Gump in Vietnam. So you're going to hear that soundtrack in the background. It's a very short 60 second video and the dropping of the Bibles, we slow it down for a split second so that you can see it. Can we play that video, please? It gets better. One of the great things about working together with the Chinese is that if we want it, we can make it. If it doesn't exist, we can invent it. So we had a need for Bibles, very, very small Bibles. How many people here have ever seen the Jason Bourne series? Okay, I haven't because I'm a Christian. <laughs> but if you've ever seen this video series, right, there's this guy that they pull out of the water. He's a special operator. And they begin to remove these rounds that have been shot into his body. And then they pull out this small little device that looks like a pill. And they push a button and it projects a light onto the wall of a bank account number. And I thought, what if we can do that with the Bible? The great thing is, is every year Back to Jerusalem hosts a hackers conference where we bring hackers from around the world to find new ways of breaking into the enemy's territory. We got this guy from Holland 
that we keep in a basement. We feed him Doritos from time to time and he writes code for us. And so we were able to develop this little Bible right here. This is the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You hold it in your hand. It illuminates the air in front of your face and you can read the entire Bible. You don't need to plug it in. You don't need to charge it. You don't need to change the batteries. It operates independently as a unit for about a year and a half. This little device here, the battery just went out of it. So I've been carrying it for about three years. So I'm going to leave this with you guys because you guys have been supporting these Bibles. This is what we call our special pill size hologram Bible. We've been using them extensively in uh, Western China and the gulags that they have there, the training camps there, as well as in North Korea. The amazing thing about this little Bible is that if you get caught with it, you can just simply swallow it. Now, we can't promise that it will come out looking the same way as it went in, but we can promise you that if you do swallow it, you will have the word of the Lord deep down inside of you. <laughs> So I want to thank you guys for supporting that, supporting Back to Jerusalem. Uh, I had been working together with the Chinese. One of the countries that we have been focused on has been Sudan. And I remember when I was in Sudan, I heard the story of an amazing woman that refused to deny the name of Jesus. She was thrown in prison together with her son. And I remember hearing that story, and I'm so glad that I'm with her here today. She has been a voice for the voiceless. She has been telling others about women around the world that have been suffering under oppression. Everything that we raise on this tour together with this amazing woman, her name is Miriam Ibrahim, 100% of all the funds that we raise goes towards a safe house that we are working with right now that has Iranian women. Uh, Iranian women that have been suffering and they have uh, been oppressed. So we are raising funding for this safe house. For those of you that are not familiar with what's going on in Iran, we have a special, <clears throat> excuse me, we have a special gift. This gift is a free ebook called Jesus in Iran. And I, we, have a, we have a text number that you can, or we have a phone number that you can text. If you send your email to this number, we will send you the free ebook called Jesus in Iran. This is the only book that we know of that breaks down the underground church inside of Iran and shares what is happening there with one of the largest revivals in any Muslim nation. There are women that also that we are working with that were impacted by ISIS. Um, many of them we've been working together with to make what we call the Back to Jerusalem prayer bears. These prayer bears are handmade by women that were hit by ISIS. In fact, each one of them, uh, they put their name on them and we have them at our book table that's right outside the door this morning. Any donation that you give, you take whatever books or whatever we have on the table. If you don't have a donation to give, you still take whatever you would like from the table. We want to make a deposit into your life about what is happening with the Underground House Church and what this church has been partnering together with us on. We have a few books today. One of them is a book that anybody that is working together with Buddhists, or if you have come across anybody that is, is in Buddhism or new age religion, this is a phenomenal story. This is an evangelist that I work very closely with. He was a, uh, a Lama in charge of his temple and he worked directly under the Dalai Lama. So he studied under the Dalai Lama and he pulls the facade off of what real Buddhism looks like. A phenomenal story. We also have a book about the number of unreached people groups and how it is growing smaller and smaller and how we are seeing the enemy grow more and more desperate in the ends of time. Right now, we see that as the number of people that are unreached become less and less, the enemy becomes more and more anxious. The more anxious he becomes, the more violent he gets. The more violent he gets, the more persecution we see. The more persecution we see, the more revivals that take place. The more revivals that take place, the less unreached people groups there are. And we share about that in China and end time prophecies. And if we can, we have another, just a short introduction to Miriam's story that I'm going to ask Miriam to come up and share with us this morning. Can we play that video, please? Can we welcome Miriam with a big round of applause, please? Thank 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Miriam, I'm so glad that you're here. I know that everybody's excited to hear your story. We want to hear about the time that when you were in prison and you were being tortured for your faith. But before we get there, would it be possible for you to open up and just share with us a little bit about your background so that we can understand your time in prison more? Right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for having us. Really, I'm grateful. This is like kind of the end of our tour. And it's going to be great. So uh, I'm originally from Sudan, is Islamic country. Um, I was born for a Muslim father and Christian mother. My mother originally from uh, Ethiopia, um, is a neighbor country with Sudan. And she flew war um, and settled in a refugees camp in, in Sudan where she met with my father. My mom flew uh, her country with her uh, sister. They lost everybody in the family and on settled in the refugees camp. So my father was a Muslim and he's also from Darfur. And um, he involved, he's older, way older than my mom, but, and he's involved in honor killing, which um, caused him to uh, flee his area and hide on that uh, area by the refugees camp and start working as a bus driver. The, for the refugees, like to transport them from the refugees camp to the city, so people work as some women as a maid, and they work on the farming land. Um, so that's uh, my story. Uh, as I said, my father abandoned his family. He have uh, another family, but uh, when he faced that issue, he have to abandon them and flee the area. Um, it's. Uh, there's so much challenges for my mother as a woman and as the refugee in our country. The refugees are really being treated so way different than in the West. So um, she worked at the market and um, she's Christian also. And she, um, and, and in a situation like that, in marriage between Muslim and Christian, people expect women to convert as soon as she married. But my mom didn't, and this has become really issues in her marriage. She faced domestic violence and um, uh, oppressed. So somehow in the divorce, my father left the area. Later we heard he passed away. So we moved to different city, settled in the city. My mom continued working and taking care of us. I have another uh, two siblings. I'm the older one. So um, by that time, she to protect us, and they didn't really understand that at that time until, like, I've been thrown to jail. So she had to change our name. So my father's family and nobody will track us down. And we grew up in that community as a, you know, as a religious minority, considered. And my mom was, a, like, she's a single mom, and it's so weird, you know, to be working. It's not, but she always, like, breaking the, the normals, you know, on uh, the area. So um, that's a little bit about... Yeah, so your mother was yeah. a refugee. She had come to the refugee camp when she was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, your father was... Uh, it, he had committed a murder for honor killing. He killed his sister and a guy that she had been talking to. He was on the run. He meets with your mother. He is uh, in his 40s when he marries your mother, who's 16. They have you you are now considered a Muslim because your father is Muslim, your mother is Christian, but under Sharia law, you are now considered to be Muslim. So from there, you go to school, um, and then what happens? Yes, um, we are considered uh, Muslim, my, my siblings and I, in this situation, and yet we, uh, I go to church with my mom because she's Christian. Um, despite all that, also, we have to study Islamic teaching at the school, and this is one of the biggest challenges I faced, uh, um, you know, at the school, because growing up with my mom, seeing how kind and how wonderful person, loving and caring, always praying, smiling, she don't even like, she wasn't um, facing that violence with the same way as they do to her. Uh, so, and go to school, the teacher, the Islamic teacher will teach us about, I mean, uh, everything about in Quran, how to treat the infidel and unbeliever, they're unclean, they will go to hell. 
and God will punish them. And like, uh, so, and I start responding by not following the same thing. Like, you, we studied everything, you know, as a student, since first grade, you have, no matter who's, what's your religion, you have to study the Islamic teaching. In order for you to move to the upper grade, you have to pass the Islamic test, which is, include memorizing scripture from Quran, Sunnah, Sira, everything about Quran. Like, we have full knowledge as a religious minority, as a Christian, we know everything about Islam. So that's, that was an issue for me because I said I refused to, like, to repeat after the teacher. So we call into the principal office, like, you know, get in trouble. And then that's uh, because they know my mom was a Christian. She won't, like, involve us. They try to take care of me their own. So sometimes they are nice. Sometimes they are not. So, and, um, I mean, like, almost this is the only trouble I have when I'm at the school. Or the same way also, me not wearing, like covering my hair and walking the streets. So the elder will come in to tell my mom, you have to talk to your daughter. And she needed to make sure she's dressing up. Just, we have like dress code for the women, you know, you have to follow that. So, yeah. And so you are, drop out of school because of the demands of you to recite certain surahs of the Quran that you do not agree with. Uh, after you drop out, you meet with a missionary who takes interest in you, helps put you through another school. You end up taking the national exam to get into university. You score so high that they announce your name on TV. You go to university, you graduate as a medical doctor. And then you have a, a child, you get married, you have a child, and then something happens. Can you tell us about that? Yes, um, I, I met with uh, the missionaries and everything really, I really get sad when I have to leave the school, but just respect to my mom, I did. Um, I have like different plan. I, after I finish the school, I, before actually I, I was involved on the church. Now I'm Christian. I don't really care about what, how they treat me, but that's how it is. Um, still, there's so much pressure and challenges on that. Um, so I have plans. So I'm going to get married. After I get married, I start my own business. And like I want to be an independent, strong woman. Nobody will mess with my children. <laughs> so and this happened to be my uh, husband. I married to my husband was a U.S. citizen. So he resides in the United States, and there's no plan for me. Like, I love the United States, but I don't think like I'm ready to leave my country and and uh, go somewhere else. So that's how I start my business and everything in Sudan, and I continue serving as a church like normal. It was very peaceful life, I can tell you. But that was my plan, you know. But God really have a totally different plan for me. Um, I was called in to the police station. And I went there, and I thought at the beginning, some of the people who work on my store or at the market or my farmland get into trouble. Because the police leader didn't tell me exactly what's the problem. So we need you to come in. And I went. Like, I didn't have anything like, to be scared of. I didn't even like call the lawyer. So when there, I met with uh, um, two men sitting in the room, and the officer said, Ask me, I said, yes, I am. So, and then I realized, no, she's not Maryam. And they're calling me with Islamic name. And I'm like, this is our sister and we want her back, no matter what the cost. So I said, and then the officer started explaining to me, he said, this is your father's family and they want you back. This is your brothers and they want you back. And I remember he wearing a knife like that on his arm. And I'm like, okay, I have my own family now. Why, like, you know, I was shocked. You can call your, you, your sister into the police station and say, when are you back? Like, I'm not a criminal. So um, it really get very, um, uh, you know, heated conversation. And the officer said, okay, you said you married. I said, yes, I'm married. So bring your marriage certificate. And this is a really big trouble, another trouble. Because when I brought the marriage certificate, was from the church. So that's... No, you can't do that. I said, what? I break the law by doing that. You said you need my marriage certificate. So, um, yeah. And here I start facing the, the case move to adultery. 
because I'm Christian. I mean, I'm a daughter of a Muslim man, and I break the law by marrying to Christian man. In Sudan, in Sudan, because of the laws in Sudan, uh, you are considered Muslim. And a Muslim woman, it is illegal to marry a Christian man, correct? Yes, because they believe women are weak. So, and the, why my mom has trouble? Because they expect her husband to convince her to convert to Islam. But, and then you weak, as a Muslim girl, you consider weak, you can marry to Christian because your husband might convince you to convert to Christianity. So a Muslim man can marry a Christian woman, yeah, you but can a marry Muslim any woman other religion, cannot yes. marry a Christian no, man. No. So can you tell us about the first night? So you are arrested. They put you in jail. Once they realize that you are guilty of first adultery, because your marriage is not legit, your child is not legitimate. And then um, now it moves into apostasy because you should be a Muslim and you are saying, no, I believe in Jesus. Can you tell us about that first night in jail? Yes. Um, so that's how uh, I, um, for me, convincing, saying that I'm Christian, add another charge for me, which is apostasy. So, and it's the hearing, um, actually, since like September, that's why I get called from September to December. I came from my house every two weeks to court. Just the question, Muslim Christian, they banned me from travel and I was offered to escape the country because everybody know that this is going to end with a death sentence because apostasy. So, and, um, but I got to talk with the nuns and my uh, priest. They told me, like, this is persecution, Miriam. We're Christian. We face persecution in many different forms and oppression, but yours is a different. Now you know about persecution, and it's written, and it's going to happen to us. And I remember he's telling me, like, like Peter, like Paul. I'm like, I'm not like them. Like, <laughs> so, but at the end, it came to prison. And that was a, a day before Christmas, on Christmas Eve. So I went to court. I wasn't ready to spend the night out of my house. And then I responded that day to the judge. And he gets so angry. Because as a woman, you expect to just bow your head down and be quiet, don't respond. And I was looking into the judge's eyes, and I respond. And that's make him so upset. So you go to jail tonight. So I said, okay. But I still like, okay, <laughs> start getting, oh, this is getting really serious. And um, I start to freak out. Like, I'm not a criminal. I didn't do anything wrong. And that's make them so happy seeing me, like, arguing that in that situation. And they they start to feel I'm getting scared. So the officer will say, okay, just go back. We're going to call the judge and tell him she said she's okay. She accepts Islam. And then what's going to happen, you're going to get flogged. And this child will be taken. And then you will go with this. I say, like, how could an I go with this people? Like, he holding a knife in his arm. It's not like I'm afraid of dying. Like, you're telling me you're going to receive this sentence. And then you have to say no to Christ. And then you say yes to Islam. That's how I'm going to adopt. That's what my child is going to be taken to the orphan. I mean, it was a really messy situation, you can tell. So your first I night went, in prison? They were sent to prison. And before they do they run medical evaluation, every time in that situation, they're facing, okay, this woman is crazy. So she had some mental health because she didn't know what she's doing. You can't tell someone, we want to save you. And you just say a word to accept Islam, trick the judge, do whatever he asks you to do, and go free. And I said, no, it's not that simple. My death and my life is in God's hand. It's not in his hand. How couldn't I say that? Like, it wasn't an option for me to say yes. Um, I went to prison, and uh, they brought, took me to jail. There's a medical evaluation. They give me a good news. They said that I'm pregnant with something I wasn't really planning to do. My husband just came visit from the state, and then the trial started. I love, I want to have children. <laughs> I, I mean, before I go to, before I marry, they want to be nuns, okay? And then I realized I needed to build a family, big family. This was my plan. So I want to have 20 children. And then the trial started. I'm like, okay, I'm pregnant, going to jail, holding another child on my arms. On Christmas Eve, 
So I was so freaking out and I was so upset, crying. And the only thing I remember that time, okay, said if my mom was alive, this would never happen to me. Because that's, I, back in my mind, that's why my mom did all this, just kept us away from those people. She never talked about my father's family for this reason. But if she's alive today, those people will never come on my way and they will never do that to me. And I was so upset. So Martin, my son with me, and I still nurse him at that time, he's nine months. So he lay down a little bit and he just said, let me pray. So there's other women in the room, but they're kind of scared of me because the officer, like, when he bring him in, said, like, you're crazy, you're unclean, all this, you know, bad language he used. So the women start having an idea, but I'm a crazy person. And then it ended up me, I closed my eyes just for a little bit, and it just deep voice. I still like every time something happened, I just remember that voice. No matter what's happened in my life today, I just remember that voice and softest on my shoulder. You're not alone. And he opened my eyes, screaming, and like, who are you? Where are, what did you say? I want to hear it again. Like, I want to hear him not alone here in this situation because I don't know who's going to help me. And I just realized it was Jesus. It was him. And this supernatural peace just all over. And I start looking around like, yes, I'm not alone. I'm not unclean. I'm blessed to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm not like what they said. And Jesus is here with me. My mom is not, but Jesus with me. So, and uh, okay, the woman start like, oh, yes, she's crazy. And they call into the officer. And he came in, yeah, we told you, this woman is crazy. You need to be careful around her. So that was part of one of the, yeah. And since that, like, I start no more scared, no more crying, no more upset. Yes. So after you have this supernatural experience of Jesus touching you on the shoulder, you hear his voice say, you're, you're not alone. You go from being scared and anxious to being bold and courageous to the point where there's one guard that everybody knows. He's quite intimidating. He's a massive guard, uh, quite violent. He keeps taking young ladies into the back room and, and abusing them in many different ways. And uh, you, you actually find a situation where you are confronting him. And he's not a... He's not a a safe person to engage. I mean, he's known for a special move that in prison you guys call the, the helicopter where he picks up women and turns them over his head and throws them into the wall if they make him upset. But something happens where he's coming to get a girl and take him with him, take her with him, and something happens in an exchange between you and him. Yes, you know, that's... Um when I walk into the room, I noticed there's something wrong with this woman, but I was so on my own. So, but after that, I start looking around. They still don't really trust me well because I'm crazy for them. So, a crazy woman, she brought her child in prison. She just because she didn't want to listen to the call. And um, yeah, this man came and he's like calling, called one of the women. And they, I hear them whispering. It's like something wrong here. Because they stayed a long time together in this cell. They looked like that. So, and I just, from nowhere, I stood up and I said, no, you're not going with him. Where are you going? What are you going to do to her? And he's looking in my eyes like, you crazy woman, sit down. I said, no, I'm not sitting and you're not touching her. And she's also the same way. Please don't put us in more trouble. Just let me go. And I said, no, you're not going. So she sat down. And this officer walked by, and he never looked back again. He never came to the, the cell again. That's one of the, yeah, one of the nights. Yes. So you're in prison. Um, they believe that there are supernatural things happening with you. They believe that you're crazy because a sane person would not challenge the courts, challenge the system as you are. And there is something that, that takes place where they try to exercise the demons out of you. And so every couple of days, something happens. Yeah, this imam will come and, and read Quran over me, you know. Um, so there's some details. My children are watching now. So they know a lot of the story. But yeah, so it is, they just believe that I am uh, brainwashed by uh, the black magic. 
I'm, I have demons, I am possessed, or there's something wrong with me. Like, you don't know, I was called bad mother, you're taking your children to prison, you know, because you don't want to obey the law, like you're setting bad example by disobeying the law. And I see that's wrong, because I know the Bible said, you know, it's evil, you know. So, and um, for me, knowing that, Silence in the face of evil is self-evil, so I'm not going to be part of this and it will pay you so it can make you happy. And then at the same time, it's, it isn't an option for me. Like, so that's why the, the imam will come every day to read Quran over me and flog and uh, spit on uh, water, He's reading certain verses that they believe it will kill in the demon, or uh, they call in Arabic a jinn. So and they believe that. When I say it's hurting, he would say, no, that's not on you, that's on the demon, and they need to get out of you. Because if you have this demon, you would still continue saying, I'm Christian. They brought in a convert, a um, uh, pastor, former pastor from Eritrea, who converted to Islam, and he started debating with me, like, I am, uh, feel so much good now, Christianity is a lie, Christ is a lie, the church is lying to you. And I was really abandoned. I was rejected by everybody. Like, nobody allowed, from the people I know, my husband would come and visit me in prison, except those Muslim scholars. So, and I was allowed to stay with them alone in the room. This is opposite of my lawyer. So, when my lawyer came to visit me, they, I would be sitting with around guards and be limited, restricted for what to say, and they are the same. They will be restricted, like, you cannot talk to, encourage her. You have to tell her, if you do not say yes, she's going to face uh, this sentence. So, yes, and um, a lot of things that really happened. Uh, so, in prison, it wasn't a good experience. But they see me, like, when I see the way they treat me, they see me as um, a weak person. And they still see me as a threat. Because when I'm, the moment, the time when I'm in labor, giving birth to my daughter, they kept the shackle. And they keep, the officer would kick me by the boot of my back. And she's like, Sudan is being criticized by the world opinion because of you. And I have no idea what she's talking about because in that prison, I have no access to any communication with the world outside. Just with prayer, my son and I, we're just praying in that dark prison. And God really answered our prayer. Like when somebody telling me now, well, there's no such thing as a God. I said, did you go to him? <laughs> like that. So we did pray. I mean, rejected, face all this pressure, but I still just, the only thing I would do, just pray for myself, for my situation, for my children, and for the guards that were really beating me. Because in every situation like that, remember that persecution, Christ has been persecuted. The moment he's being crucified, the only thing he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. That's exactly what I know because those officers, they have no, they don't know Christ. They don't know. They weren't able to go to church. They're not able to communicate. Now, when Eugene shared about the spread of the gospel and the way back to Jerusalem used to, sh to bring the gospel to people. That's what people need because we need to know the word of God because that's how we fight. That's how we use it, you know, the sword to fight the enemies. So that's a little bit of yeah. the So you are convicted. Mm -hmm. um, you will not say the Shahada. You do not confess Islam. You refuse to deny Christ, and you are convicted. Can you tell us what your, what your sentence is? Yeah, I was sentenced to 100 lashes. My verdict was adultery and apostasy. And then the sentence, 100 lashes for adultery. Because the, the, the court determined my marriage is invalid. And uh, yes, they cancel my marriage. And then uh, for me saying I'm Christian, I confess. This is proof that I'm an apostate. So that's why I was sentenced to death, no, death by hanging. Mm -hmm. So you are sentenced to flogging. The flogging actually is happening every day. Mm -hmm. But the flogging that they sentenced you to was a public flogging for... Shameful, uh, yeah, shame way. The he, shame for... Uh, mm -hmm. adultery and death by hanging. There are many miracles that take place during the time that you are in prison and uh, it, because we, we see so many things happen. At one point, you die and, and you come back to life. Uh, there are, the, you, you shared with us the miracle of Jesus speaking to you 
in your sail. But there's one special miracle that takes place that is in connection with your shackles that are wrapped around your feet. Can you share with us what happens with the shackles? This was really good. So, yes, really. I mean, like, seriously, I do really, like, feel so overwhelmed. Like, that's so many things sometimes, you know, get discouraged. But God really just shows things in the right time. And that was, like, the sentence. And there's too much pressure on God's around me. I'm not allowed to communicate with anyone. And, like, why is they scared of me? Because I know it wasn't really about me anymore. But like, why they're scared of me so much like that? I don't want to be threat. I want to, don't want to be like putting somebody <laughs> in a position like that. So, but as I said, it wasn't about me. So, um, uh, I get up this morning. I sleep, like we lay down, there's guards around me. So I have to keep an eye on Martin. I have to... There's no comfortable place you can lay down. I am pregnant, like the end of my, um, you know. So I opened my eyes and I felt my legs. The shackle was really heavy. And out of the sudden, I felt so light. So I didn't want to move my legs. And I looked. When I looked, because if I moved my legs, the shackle will just fall apart. That's really happened. So, and I called, I was shocked, the, the guards were there already, so when I moved the, the cover, and I was looking, I'm like, what? With a smile, and she's like, what happened, are you okay? I said, yes, I'm okay, because I have no shackle. Like, no, you're not okay, what did you do? I said, I didn't do anything, what did I do? Like, oh, okay, that's proof this woman have demons, she's doing witchcraft, and now she's trying to escape. What did you do? They just want to ask me. And, and out of nowhere also, I just don't know people are praying for me, you know. There's so much, uh, too many people are praying for me at that time. And I didn't know that. I have no clue, but just the Holy Spirit. And I said, this is a prayer. It's like, praying to who? Let your Jesus come and save you. You're going to die like a dog. I'm like, okay. So I wasn't really upset that day. I was so happy and so, you know, there's so much joy. They still put another shackle <laughs> again, <laughs> a different one, and they changed that one because, you know, they use their own way to threat me. And uh, they, like, they really uh, have, what I will say, they are very talented in things. So they brought a shackle that used for a woman is being executed already. So that's a reminder, like, you're in, you're in death row. You wearing this, this is going to get out from you to when you're going to get hanged. So, yeah. So your shackles just dissolved yeah, off dissolved. of your legs. Yes. If you move your legs, they'll be unshackled. Yes. They, then they put four guards on you 24 hours a day because it might be possible for a pregnant woman that's nine months pregnant with shackles to leap over 10-foot walls while carrying her nine-month-old child. Yeah, and I was like <laughs> praying, like, you, God, did all this thing. Why don't you allow me to hide phone or something so I can... <laughs> because the world want to see things, really. Because, you know, sometimes we experience things that are unseen because that's who he is, you know. That's God is unseen. So we do things that we experience in our life. I don't know how to put this right. <laughs> <laughs> it's one thing to go to prison for your faith. It's one thing to face the death sentence. But you are there with your child, mm -hmm. your infant child, and an unborn child. Can you tell us what, what did you do like during the days to entertain or play with uh, your, your son, Martin? So, you know, children are really blessing. I want to talk about children before I say that. So I have my friend, when I share my story, she said, when God want to bring things new, he bring a child, new, Moses, Jesus. They are babies, and their situation and the way they came to life changed a lot of things. So knowing that I have my son, it wasn't a burden. Like, you know, I know God's hand on me and on my children. God's hand over us. No matter what they tried, really, like... Nobody really believed we would survive that prison. They already knew that. You're going to prison that you are in, in our hand. Like before you go to trial from my house, I still felt a lot of things. 
But now in prison, you are in our hand, like in, under our control. But they didn't know that that's not true. So um, I used, Martin was very upset about the shackle. You know, he's a toddler and he's very active. And Tin now, he's a monkey, like jumping everywhere. He didn't know to walk. He didn't know how to walk. Like, seriously, be running everywhere. Like, at the church, he serve at the altar. He do it running. Like, so much energy. So he want to run and play around, and he can't because restriction and limited space. So, and he's so upset about the shackle. Like, he was keep, like, pulling it. He want to take it out. And I think that's also part of the dissolving the shackle. For him. So we use it as a rosary to pray rosary. I'm Catholic, Christian Catholic. So we pray rosary. So we do count some certain prayer. So we use a shackle. And then um, I, at the end, I still don't like something to do sitting quiet. So I have this um, bed sheet. So I cut it for four. And then I made it long rope. So this is maybe another travel also in prison. You can do that because I think you want to escape, right? So because our other thing also, they're in concern about me dying really seriously. So I use that. I tie the, the end on Martin's leg and then the end of the, the rope on my shackle. So and he'll be turning around, turning around, all like that, you know, until it was a huggy and then go back again. <laughs> That's most of the thing, you know, the, the exercise, I mean, for him. And then he wanted me to walk also. So we do a bingo and walk. Because I use a small space, so we do a bingo and walk. So and he liked that. We do that now at the beach, on the snow. So even now at the beach, you guys do the penguin walk yeah, together? Yeah, we do the penguin walk. Just... Um, there are so many things that take place. Eventually, you have this amazing miracle that takes place where you are, you leave from the prison, you leave from the country. And uh, something happens that before we end, I would like to just share with this congregation that the nation of Sudan basically was against you. The, the Islamic law of Sharia was against you. And you fought that. And after you left, the nation had to address what they had done to you. And as a result, there were two laws that changed for the nation of Sudan. As a result of what happened to you, two laws changed. Can you share what those two laws were? Yeah, it's actually, they don't want to let me go, the AZ, but at the end of the trial, they really, with, the, with all this pressure, and Sudan's name looks very ugly for the international community, because, you know, sentencing woman to death, where she's pregnant and she's Christian, it's exposed a lot of lies about Sharia law, how women are treated, how Christians are treated. And it's brought so much attention to the issues of religious persecution, you know? Like, you know, this is like the end. And as I said, when I went to the trial, they would tell me, this is normal. Like, why you are, you're not above the law. You're not better than anyone. We are Christian nation. I mean, we are Muslim nations. And uh, we have Christian live in this country. But if a, um, if a Muslim girl fall in love with a Christian man, that man have to convert to Islam. And I'm like, no, that's not going to happen here in my case. So, and this, that's why uh, when I saw the situation after that really uh, first night in prison, I get to realize this is really not just about me. God really have a purpose for this to happen. And um, I was allowed to leave Sudan, but before they stripped everything, my business and everything from me, and they thought they are really winning by doing that. Um, I left Sudan holding my two children, like without nothing. I can say, they say, we, we let you go with nothing. But I wouldn't. I have Christ. They wouldn't be able to take Christ from our heart, from my children's life, because my children were supposed to be sent as an orphan and then grow up as a Muslim. They didn't even allow them to keep their names. I gave them, like, Maya was uh, written and nouns on my prison file. Martin, they gave him Islamic name. So we left Sudan, we came to the state, and I started like, relying that I have a message, and I have a gift, and I have, uh, you know, um, mission in my life. So um, this change of law, apostasy, whether if Christian, I mean, if Muslim convert to Christianity, they won't face any criminal charge in Sudan. 
the dress code also, there's long, long list of public law order. It includes the dress code and other things about marriage, things like that. It's also been abolished. So, yeah, women won't face any trial because the first court I was in is a public law order court. So, yeah. So the two laws that changed was the apostasy, apostasy law, so you're no longer put on death row for apostasy, mm -hmm. and women no longer are required by law to cover themselves yeah. with any... There's no dress code. Before, like, if you are wearing any, like, pants... You can be look very respectful. There's a lot of cases like that, but you still can be, you know, uh, even if something happened to you, nobody will come to protect you because you're wearing like that. You are allowed, people are allowed to harass you, you feel sexual harassment, everything on the street. And nobody will really care because you deserve to be treated that way. Just because you're not covering your hair and you're not wearing, you know, yeah, long dress. And there's one more thing that I, there's so many things that we could talk about. I know that uh, in this setting, it's not easy for you to share certain things. In fact, even when we were writing the book, we would get to certain subjects where you would say, you know, can we talk about that at a different time? And we covered those very fragile subjects in the book. Um, I am so appreciative that you have been brave enough to share your story as share it in, in the book and with the rest of the world because it's an amazing testimony for all of us today. But now you've lived in the U.S. for about seven, eight years and uh, you've gotten to be a little bit familiar. Is there a message that you have after having been in prison, suffering for your faith, beaten for your faith, sentenced to death for your faith? Is there a message that you would share with us as the church in the West? Well, this is a hard question. <laughs> so I really say always fear and faith. Fear is the enemy. So because the enemy tries to put fear into our heart, you're going to die, you're going to face this, you're going to, you know, like, face, um, yeah, there's certain things that when we say, especially when it came to our relationship with God and trusting him, um, we say that I trust God and then things went different way in life. We start, you know, to find a different way to find a solution, but go to God in a prayer, trust in God. We have, when we say have faith, live by faith and defend our faith also. So, and I really like to see the church stand up for the persecuted church because persecution is real and it's happening everywhere. We experience it everywhere. Like, and it brings so much joy to my heart. Like we are all, you know, different uh, with churches, but at the end of our prayer, we, say, we send it to Christ, right? So, and as a body of Christ, we suffer. If one suffers, we all suffer. So, persecuted church needed us. They do need it. And the prayer is so important. The prayer showered me and my children in that dark prison. Your prayer of many believers around the world. We need to stand up for one another and to pray for one another. And I don't want to make it, uh, I don't want to bring um, politics in here, but it's so important to have godly leaders that know God, know, because I am in the field of advocacy for two different uh, governments, and I have seen different ways. So we, we always be disappointed for the man, but with God, there's no disappointment. Yeah, so yes, I would say. Thank you so much thank for sharing you. your amazing testimony, Miriam, and thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for coming tonight. I want to thank you guys so much for allowing us to be at this church, and Pastor Jeff, it's been such a blessing. I want to thank you for allowing us to be here and welcoming us with such a warm heart. God bless you.